right, well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we are in the book of Acts. You can turn to chapter 3. We started a new series last week in the book of Acts called Unstoppable, and we're talking about uh, how the church, from the very early stages, as we saw last week, the birth of the church, uh, has been this unstoppable movement throughout the world because God's Holy Spirit has come in power on His people and empowered them for His mission. We said Acts is the story of God's Spirit empowering God's people to accomplish God's mission. And so, really, when you look at Acts, you see all sorts of opportunities for the gospel to be thwarted, uh, for the church to just fold the tent and go home, uh, but it just continues to go forward. They're persecuted, they're beaten, they're imprisoned, they're killed, and yet the gospel continues to go forward. People continue to repent and believe. The church multiplies because God's Spirit, God's church, and God's gospel absolutely cannot be stopped because God has deemed it So, and so this week, uh, we get into Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we see the church in action. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see two major themes uh, that I believe run through these two chapters, and I believe to go together. You'll see the theme of the power of Jesus' name. We'll talk about what that means, and we'll see the theme of the boldness of the disciples. And those two things are kind of come together and weave together in chapter 4 as we see that there's power in Jesus' name and that disciples are supposed to be bold in Jesus' name. And in fact, we should have a boldness that, that befits the power of Jesus. And so let me ask you this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where you feel like there's been a disconnect there? Where there may be your boldness with the name of Jesus doesn't necessarily line up with the power that's in the name of Jesus? Have you ever chickened out of sharing your faith? Have you ever had a golden opportunity laid before you and just hmm, couldn't do it? Maybe you're getting your hair cut and you had this opportunity and you just couldn't do it. Maybe it was with a, a family member over Thanksgiving and the door was right there and you just didn't take it. And you know it was because you just weren't quite bold, bold enough. You didn't really have the courage to step out there in that moment. And sometimes our lack of boldness and our lack of courage doesn't befit the power of the name of Jesus. If Jesus is who he said he is, and Jesus can do what he says he can do, and if there's power in the name of Jesus, like we're going to see in this text this morning, then we have every reason to be bold with the name of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. If there's power in the name of Jesus, we need to be bold with the name of Jesus. And that's what we see from the early church. We see a belief in the power of Jesus' name, and we see a boldness with that name. So look with me, starting in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. We're going to read portions and then kind of summarize and pick up and move forward. So let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. This is the first miracle, so to speak, uh, in the early church. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is after Pentecost. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here we have this opportunity, right? They're going to pray. And here's this guy. We find out a little bit later that he was 40 years old and that he had been lame from birth. He couldn't walk since birth. He'd never been able to walk. Had a condition that it was just, in their mind, was you couldn't come back from. And he's laying outside the temple gate and he, he's outside the, beautiful, the particular gate they call the beautiful gate. And he's asking for money, right? Because he couldn't earn a living. He needed help. And he had probably laid at that same spot for decades. If you understand their culture and understand what's going on, it says people recognized him. People knew who he was. That was his corner that he worked, right? They knew that guy. They had given money to that guy. They knew that he had never been able to walk. If you grew up in that community, you knew it. 
And Peter looks at him and he says, and Peter and John, and they say, look at us. You know, people usually avoid eye contact in these situations. This guy had probably had a lot of money thrown his way without anybody even so much as paying him a passing glance. But here Peter not only looks him in the eye, he gives him a very awkward look, right? It's like, look, that's weird, you know? Look at us, look right here. I don't have any money, Ugh, you know? But I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And here's this 40-year-old man, over 40 years old, that everyone knew, and in, under the power of the name of Jesus, he's healed. And what we're seeing here is the gospel is invading this space, invading this man's life, and it's about to invade this space because now someone that they know, someone that they recognize is experiencing the power of Jesus' name. This is how the gospel goes forward. When new people begin to experience the power that is in Jesus' name, people have to deal with Jesus at that point, right? And they're about to have to deal with the gospel. And this guy would not have been allowed in the temple. He had sat outside for years. Because of his condition, he wouldn't have been allowed to come in. And now he runs in, leaping and jumping and celebrating. Wouldn't you, right? I mean, he's running through the place, right? Having a big old time. And everybody's recognizing this guy who had been kept out. Now he runs in. And then a huge crowd of thousands gather around, we learn, in the second half of chapter 3. Enough that thousands more believe in Christ. And so thousands come around and they're observing this man and Peter, it says, sees it. He sees the crowd. He sees the opportunity for something more and he begins to stand up and preach the gospel because it's not enough for us to see the opportunity. We have to seize the opportunity and that's what he does there. But Peter got this opportunity because he slowed down. He looked at God eyeball to eyeball and he ministered to this individual and off of that, came this great opportunity to advance the gospel. And then, so he's preaching the gospel, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and then as he begins to wind down, and he's calling these people to repent and believe the gospel, this is what happens. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly family, of the high priestly family. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's stop there for a second. So the Sanhedrin is the group that comes together. We see all these different leaders. This is what the Sanhedrin. One commentator said it's like the Senate and the Supreme Court all rolled into one. This powerful group of men in Israel. And one big group of that is the Sadducees that you see there. Now, they didn't believe in a resurrection of any type. 
They didn't believe in an afterlife. I mean, I don't even know what the point of, of religion, period, is if you don't believe in an afterlife. They didn't even believe it. They just, this is it, right? And so they didn't like the idea that they're preaching a resurrection, period, and they certainly don't like the fact that they're preaching resurrection in the name of Jesus, whom they had murdered. But they couldn't deny two things. Nowhere will you hear them deny the resurrection of Jesus because they don't have the body to prove that he didn't rise from the dead. And number two, you will not hear them deny the miracle because this man that they and everybody else knew who had been lame for 40 years, couldn't walk 40 years, now all of a sudden is running around in the temple. And so they couldn't deny those things. So what do they do? They try to suppress it. They try to tamp it down. They try to stop ministry going forward in Jesus' name. What they're really trying to do is because they can't, they don't want to deal with the reality of the truth that if Jesus is who he said he was and he rose from the dead and healing is happening now in this man's name, then they have killed the Son of God. They have killed the Messiah. And they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to think that that might be true. So they mock, they'll belittle because they can't disprove the claim. That's what people still do today. A lot of times, rather than wrestle with the claims of Christ, they'll mock They'll belittle, they'll roll their eyes, they'll find ways to divert because they don't want to actually wrestle with the claims because they're, here's the thing, they're not just, it's not just that it might be true, they don't want it to be true. We suppress the truth, Romans 1 tells us. There is something inside people many times that they'll actually not even want it to be true because if it's true, then they have to deal with it. If it's true, then their life is, is built on a fallacy. And if it's true, then maybe their life has to change and maybe they don't want their life. And that's been going on all the way back since the very beginning of this thing. Some of the things you run into with family members and neighbors, they were running into back then on a different, in, a different area, in a different way. Now, in verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they began to pray. They call on him as sovereign Lord, and they begin to pray and recount his creative act and how he is the creator of all things and and then their request comes in in verse 29 in their prayers. They're praying together. Verse 29 says, And now, this is what they pray. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You saw two themes as we read through that over and over again. The power that's in the name of Jesus and the boldness of those first disciples. Now, so here's our big takeaways. Uh, this is what I see in the text from them. Two big ideas that I want us to wrap our hands around this morning. Number one, we need to believe. You need to believe. I need to believe. Believe in the power of the name of Jesus. They clearly believed in the power of the name of Jesus. But what do they mean by that? What do they mean in chapter 3 when they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Is this some sort of weird magical incantation? Abracadabra, you're healed? Well, what do they mean by, in the name of Jesus? Like, we think of a name, we think of letters, like consonants and vowels that are formed together to make a sound that we call a name. We think of, that's kind of how we think of it. My name is Josh, J-O-S-H. But a name's a lot more than that, and they definitely understood a name to be more than that. In their culture, a name embodied the person. It was representative of them, of him or her. It represented their authority, their power, even their character. It, it, it was the, the representation of themselves. The name was tied to the identity of the person. And so it carried their authority, it carried their weight. I grew up uh, in a little small town, and my family owned like one of the only two grocery stores in the town. And it was called Malone's. My granddad owned it, and they lived next door to it. And I spent a lot of summers and time after school hanging out at the store, right, when I was little. It closed when I was like 12 or so. But when I was little, I used to hang out over there all the time, and the, you know, the high school and college guys and stuff that would work there. And, you know, I'd run around there, and I'd strut around that place like I owned it, right, because my name was on it, right? <laughs> you didn't like it, I'd tell granddad. Or then after he retired, my dad and my uncle ran it. And so, but, you know, I had zero authority. I had zero authority in that place as an eight-year-old running around. In fact, I believe my first theft, and I guess my only theft, took place um, in that store at about five when I tried to run off with a pack of gum and got busted, right? I realized I didn't have the authority. I didn't own it. I thought my name was on the store, 
but I did not own it. Now, my granddad, on the other hand, or after he retired, my dad and uncle, they had ownership. And so when they told one of those high school students or young men or young women that were working in that store, I need you to do this, I need you to put this out over here, I need you to go over here and clean this, they did it if they wanted to keep their job, right? Because they had the power. Through. I couldn't do that, right? Now, or somebody could go in their name and say, hey, my granddad's name was Elson. Elson has said, you need to do this. And they had to make a decision at that point. Do I believe, you know, is this, is this? But the, it was all about the authority. It was all about the name. It was all about, do you have the authority? That's just how chain of command works, right? And so when these disciples, when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, he's saying this. Jesus Christ, who died and was risen, has risen again, and who reigns, is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ, who we believe has been walking this, walked this earth for 40 days, resurrected, who has ascended to the right hand of God, in His name, by His authority, Jesus heals you. I don't heal you. Jesus heals you. Get up and walk. Not my authority. Jesus' authority. In His name, you get up and walk. And what we're seeing here is a continuation of Jesus' ministry through the apostles. We're seeing a continuation of his power going forth. Is it happening in his name? And in verses 11 through 26, when Peter's preaching, and it's a very similar sermon to chapter 2. He's saying, Jesus is God's servant. The Messiah is the servant from Isaiah. You killed him. He actually says, you killed the author of life, which is referring to the deity of Christ. He's saying, you killed the creator. You killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead. He has risen again. And he says, it's in his name, the man that you killed who has risen again, it's in his name that this man has been healed. He's saying he's alive, he's the Messiah. It's in his name that this has happened. And here's the thing. If Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the author of life, then it would make sense that there's power and that there's authority in his name to do what they're saying to do, to rise up and walk to heal, to be saved, all these things. They're saying Christ is unlike any other person. They're saying Jesus whom you crucified is unlike any other person that's ever lived because God has raised him from the dead and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he reigns. He's the author of life. He has authority over everything. And that's the sermon, right, that he preaches out of this. And he's preaching that the power and the authority of the name of Jesus, that Jesus' name's above every name, that there's no one else like Jesus. And we see in this text, Two very clear things that he points out. The first thing we see is that Jesus, has, his name has the power to heal. And he tells this man to get up and walk, and he does. Now, God still, still heals people today, but it was much more regular then than it is now, and especially in terms of the way it happened. He uniquely worked with the apostles to authenticate the apostolic message. That's why they called it a sign. Signs and wonders, they called it. What's it a sign to? It's a sign that the gospel is true. That Jesus has risen from the dead. That the kingdom of God is coming. That you need to repent and believe the gospel. And so there was this mass influx, this wave, if you will, of miracles that comes crashing onto the shore of humanity when Jesus comes to the earth. And it continues to splash after Pentecost as the apostles go out and authenticate the message. And as they spread the gospel and as they heal people to so look, he's risen from the dead. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power to save you. And you can know that because there's power to heal. Now, what was normative then, that doesn't mean it's normative now. So don't go walking through the mall today, right? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, right? You'll notice a lot of the guys that are on TV that make a lot of money telling people to get up and walk and doing things like that. They don't walk through hospitals. They don't walk through malls. They do it in the safe confines of their arenas. don't really have a lot to say about that. Instead, to say that's not how the apostles did it. They walked up on the dude on the street and said, get up and walk. Because they had an authority in the name of Jesus to be able to do that. Now, here's the thing. God still heals people today. I believe that. Absolutely, I believe that. Or I would never pray for sick people. But I pray for sick people all the time. Because I believe God still heals people. But, but, sometimes he doesn't. And it's all according to his purposes and his plan and things that we can't even fully understand. And sometimes for his glory and according to his plan, he heals people in this life. And sometimes he does it. And if you're a believer in Christ, here's what you do have promise. You have the promise of ultimate healing in heaven and in a new heaven and a new earth with a glorified body. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, you you do get healing in his name, but you may not get it all here and now. But you do get it. 
So there's healing in the name of Jesus, but even in, even, even in the Gospels, in, in the New Testament, you see it becoming less frequent. You see the Apostle Paul leaving someone sick in one city, he writes. He left him there. Why didn't he heal him? I don't know. And Because was, there was this mass influx of this to authenticate the Gospel message in the early days. But the fact is, the Apostles did not spend all their time healing people. It actually decreases, like I said, within their lifetimes. Their focus was actually on preaching the gospel. And the physical healings that were taking place were pointing to a greater healing that needed to take place. And that is that in Jesus' name, there's not only power to heal, there is power to save. And it was authenticating that. And so when we see something like the lame beggar get healed physically, it also points us to a greater thing, which is the salvation of a soul for all of eternity. Romans 10, 13 the Apostle Paul writes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the story of the New Testament. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. There's not only power to heal, there's power to save. And in that lame beggar story, we have this picture of the inclusiveness of salvation. It's inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in that here's a guy who's outside the temple, can't come inside the temple. He's been an outcast all of his life, and now all of a sudden, he's immediately an insider. He goes from outside to being inside. He goes from standing out looking in, now he's inside looking out. God takes those who are far away and who are even outcasts, those people wouldn't even give the time of day to, and he radically transforms them and makes them his and brings them into the kingdom. That's what Jesus does in the gospel. It's a physical sign pointing us to a spiritual reality. Not only that, you also see the inclusive nature of the gospel in the sermon Peter preaches that we didn't read. He stands up and he preaches to these people in Jerusalem who were a part of the people that shouted, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Right? They let the thief go and they want Jesus killed. And he says, you kill the author of life. And then he looks at those same people and he says, if you will repent, your sins can be blotted out. Now think about that. You killed the author of life. If you'll repent, you can be saved and you can come into the family of God. It's inclusive. There's nobody that's too far gone. There's nobody that's done something so bad that they can't be saved. He offers it to all. When asked by the Sanhedrin on what name they did this over in chapter 4, in verse 12, they say what is the most well-known verse in these two chapters. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You hear the inclusive nature of the gospel there. Given among men, Right? Not a certain type of men or a certain type of people or a certain people group. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not given among men. He's been, he's been sent to all mankind to offer salvation. And then also notice, Peter's not arrogant. Peter's not putting himself up there by which we must be saved. We're all in the same boat and it's sinking, right? And he's the only way out. But also, you see the exclusive nature of the name of Jesus in this. There is no one else. There is no other name. Peter is telling them there is a real person who lived and died and has risen and he personally is your only hope of heaven. Anybody can be saved but only through Jesus. It's the only name under heaven by which men everywhere, men and women everywhere, must be saved. No other way. Now, people get irritated by that. Right? And a lot of times, it's really because we don't really understand what's at stake in the ramifications of it. If your house is burning down, and you're about to die, and the fire department shows up and busts through a window with a ladder and says, come on, let's get you out of here. You know what you don't do? You don't, you don't say, well, I wish I could go out the door. You don't say, I'm offended you haven't given me more ways. In fact, well, I, I would like to have some other options on that. No, you just get out. Right? You just get out of the burning house. And the problem is, the reason we want to sit around and debate, why can't, why can't there be more than one way? How is so, it's so this, it's so that, that it's exclusive? It's because we don't understand that the house is on fire and we should just be thankful that there's a way. Amen. God doesn't owe us more than one way. He didn't owe us one way. But He's made a way. And, that, and when we understand what's really happening and what's really at stake and who we've offended in our sin and where we stand before a holy God, we're not looking for four or five ways out. We'll take the way God gives us when we understand the weight of our sin. And they didn't shy back. It's inclusive. It's for everybody that will believe. 
It's exclusive. There's no other way. And that's still the same message we preach today, that there's power in the name of Jesus. Power to heal, power to save. Power to save anyone who will believe. He is God's chosen one sent to save us from our sins. There is power in His name this morning. And the second thing we see in the text, the second thing that I want us to take hold of this morning is that we need to be bold with the name of Jesus. Be bold with the name of Jesus. Think about the images we see in these two chapters. All through the text, boldness is on display. Right? They boldly look at this guy in the eye and tell him to get up in the name of Jesus and walk. Peter boldly stands and preaches the gospel to thousands of people because of the opportunity that's given to him for this man's healing. Then they're arrested and they have to stand in front of these powerful men, the religious leaders of their day, and they boldly stand for Jesus. And then they go back and they pray with their friends. And what do they do? They pray for boldness that they would continue in the face of persecution. Boldness is all through it. Where did this boldness come from? Why aren't we as bold today as they were then? Today, we see less boldness and we see more cowardice and brashness. Cowardice refuses to take any kind of a stand, really. It has not the heart to tell people the truth about themselves. It has not the heart to tell people the truth about God. Cowardice will bend and shape according to not offending someone. A lot of times, cowardice disguises itself as love, right? I don't want to say this or say that because that wouldn't be loving, but the person's not being loving many times. And I don't mean this to sound as harsh as it's going to sound, but they're being a coward. Or they've completely turned from the truth, right? And so the other side of that, though, the other ditch we fall into is brashness. Kind of an arrogant, condescending, condemning way of standing for the truth. The brash are so afraid of being a coward, they're a jerk. They don't think they're jerks. They think they're bold. Cowards don't think they're cowards. They think they're loving. Jerks don't think they're jerks. They think they're bold. Neither one's loving and neither one's bold. One's a coward, one's a jerk. And we all have the tendency and have probably at some time in our life been cowardly or a bit of a jerk. A bit, a bit brash. And the world will not be turned upside down as it was by the early church as we'll see later in Acts. They actually say they're turning the world upside down. It will not be turned upside down by cowards and jerks. But it will be turned upside down by bold and loving witness. James Emery White, in his book Meet Generation Z, writes this. I love this quote. He says, when discussing the truths of Scripture, it's not what we say, but how we say it. What's he saying? It's not, we get that we got to share the truth. We, we don't get to negotiate this, right? It, it is what it is. It's objective truth. Uh, the message of Jesus, the story of the Bible, God's Word, this is objective truth. We don't get to debate. We can, but we shouldn't be debating whether we share the truth or not. But what we miss sometimes is it's also extremely important how we share the truth with people. How we say it. See, their boldness, their, their message was winsome. They had a winsome boldness. You hear this in Peter telling the truth. He says, you killed the author of life. Ooh, so that doesn't sound winsome. And then he says, but you can be forgiven. He actually goes so far as he looks at him and he says, you didn't know he was the author of life. You didn't know he was the Messiah. But now he's risen from the dead and now you know. And you need to repent and believe. So there's a boldness there, but there's a winsomeness there. There's a boldness there, but there's a love and understanding there. There is truth there and there is grace there. So, how do we walk in this kind of boldness? Well, first you need to receive boldness from spirit empowerment. Peter and John's bold display came on the hills of Pentecost. When the Sanhedrin questioned Peter, in what name do you do this? In verse 8, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then answered in boldness. They get together with their friends and they pray for boldness and it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued in boldness. It was Spirit-produced. It was Spirit-wrought. It was Spirit-empowered boldness. And we need to receive boldness, not from within ourselves, but from the Holy Spirit. See, a distinguishing mark of being empowered by the Spirit of God is boldness. We can't get around that when we read the New Testament. It's why Jesus said you'll receive power in Acts 1 when the Holy Spirit comes upon you because His power basically turns us into God's megaphone. Spirit-empowered boldness doesn't produce a coward or a jerk. <coughs> the Spirit is not okay with silence about Jesus. 
He wants Jesus boldly proclaimed. He wants the gospel shared. But at the same time, the Spirit is not okay with us being a jerk in the name of Jesus. With us being brash in the name of Jesus. He doesn't just give us a voice. He gives us the character of Christ. Spirit and power boldness means that I can boldly speak the truth about Christ and His Word with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if those things, if that fruit is absent, I'm not bold by the Spirit. I am just a brash jerk. It's real simple. And see, if we catch ourselves, oh, I was so bold today in telling them what the truth is. Well, were you loving and joyful and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Was that present in your witness? Then the Spirit didn't empower you. Because this is what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. He doesn't just produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life every now and then and then like, oh, you know, right now, I could really use a jerk. You know, that's not not the way it works. So He empowers you to go forth in boldness, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in boldness, and that's how you get a winsome witness. It's when the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life as we share the Gospel with people. When you look in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4, and Peter looks at him and he says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to men, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. That took godly character. He didn't lash out and say, listen, you bunch of jerks. Jesus is risen from the dead and He's come. Listen, you idiots nailed Him to a cross and I've come to tell you He's alive and you're going you're gonna to burn in hell. I mean, He didn't just like go off on them like that, did He? There's, like, there's, a, there's a gentleness. Even, even though He's saying hard things, there's a kindness in it. There's a respect in it for the fact that He's speaking to a leader of His people. And you see that throughout Acts. And when they speak harshly to someone who's a leader of their people because they don't realize they're a leader of their people, they repent. Being Spirit-filled enables us both to be bold and godly. Because it changes the way we talk. It changes what's coming out of our mouth. That's why in Ephesians 5 it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because there are comparisons that can be made when someone is saturated with alcohol and they become drunk and it begins to affect how they think and speak and act and walk and it begins to control their life. In the same way, when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it begins, He begins to change how you speak and act and walk and the things you do and the choices you make. Because He's under control. And so that's why Paul says, don't be under the control of alcohol, be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that will begin to affect how you talk and what you say and what you do, and you'll be able to go forth in boldness with godly character. Now, so we receive boldness from spirit empowerment, and then we need to root our boldness in gospel confidence. Root our boldness in gospel confidence. They had seen Jesus risen. They had heard him say, all authority has been given unto me. And they had confidence that Jesus is who he said he was. Now, the point is, their boldness was not rooted in themselves, but in Christ. Remember what they told the crowd in chapter 3. Immediately after the guy's healed, he says, I don't want you to think this was by my power or by my godliness. I don't don't want you to think this is because I'm some godly guy and that I have some power to do this. It was by the power of the name of Jesus. Their confidence wasn't in themselves, it was in Christ. And the key to a bold Christian life is not rooted in confidence in your ability, your giftedness, your education. The key to a bold Christian life is confidence in Christ and His gospel. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Luke says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the Sanhedrin, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, they had a boldness that was not rooted in education or position. You you can have a boldness that comes from that. Right? Usually people, if your boldness is rooted in your education, you'll usually come across like a know-it-all. Right? You'll think you're better than everybody else. If your boldness is rooted in your position, it's the same thing, right? And it's like the superiority thing. But they, they're like, their boldness is not rooted in it. It's not, they're not bold because they're well-educated. They're not bold because they have some position. Like, these are common men, it says. These are just commoners, it says. They're not like us. They haven't had the kind of rabbinical training that we have had. They haven't learned to handle the Scriptures like we have. They're not members of the Sanhedrin, yet they speak with this boldness when they talk about God's Word because they spoke with the same boldness that Jesus spoke with. See, they were always amazed by the authority that
that Jesus spoke with. You'll see that in the Gospels. Because he spoke with authority and people recognized it in the way he handled God's word. He didn't do things like where typically a rabbi would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says this. And Jesus would just come up and say, God's word says this. And he wouldn't just go siding off all the other rabbis. He spoke with an authority. He didn't need to cite sources. He was the source. And so it was a unique authority. And in the way they're handling the word, they recognize these are men that have been with Jesus because we recognize the way they handle God's word. Because Jesus, remember, after he rose from the dead, spent time with them. Not only had he discipled them for those three years, but he interpreted them for the, the scriptures for them so that they understood how all the dots connected. So the Spirit of God opens their eyes to see how Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, how it all connects to him being the Messiah. And they hadn't just been with Jesus. Listen, if they had bumped into him on Saturday after Good Friday, they probably wouldn't have been like, wow, these are some bold guys. They wouldn't have thought anything of them. But they met him after Sunday. Because they hadn't just been with Jesus, they had been with resurrected Jesus. <laughs> they had seen the, the nail scars in his hand and the spear scar in his side. See, they had a confidence, not in themselves, but in the fact that they had been with Jesus, they had seen a resurrected Jesus, and they spoke with a boldness that was not rooted in their education or in themselves. It was rooted in something outside of themselves. It was rooted in the facts, the truth, the reality that the gospel is true, and they knew it because they had seen it. And it changed everything. And the same gospel we trust to save us is where we root our confidence to give us boldness. The gospel's true. We've been changed by Jesus. We've been given the Holy Spirit of God. We know Jesus is alive. We know that we belong to Him because we've been bought by His blood. We have every reason to root our boldness in that. I don't have to root it in my ability. I don't have to root it in, in whether I'm good at talking to people or not. I don't have to root it in, in how educated I am or how long I've been a Christian. It's not about me. It's about the gospel and whether or not the gospel is true. And my confidence needs to be rooted there. And that's where the boldness comes from, is in the claims of Jesus and who He is, not in my claims and who I am. So, we need to receive boldness from the Holy Spirit. We need to root boldness in gospel confidence and then we need to nurture boldness in gospel friendship and community. You know, in Acts chapter 2, it leaves off before it goes into chapter 3 in verses 42 through 47 painting a picture of the first Christian church as this generous, loving, hospitable, sacrificially generous community. Tight-knit, one mind. And it was basically what you might call a unique community of, of friends. And notice, after they're arrested and threatened and set free in Acts chapter 4, where do they go? Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. Their friends. It literally means one of the same kind. People of like faith and like mind. They went to the church. Now, I don't know if it was the whole church gathered. By this time, it would be a few thousand people. I don't know if it was the whole church gathered or whether it was just... The, the apostles or whether it was the original 120 or we don't know. But the point is this. They went and they got back together with their community of people who believe what they believe and they begin to pray together and seek boldness together. And I love that it calls them friends. Not fellow church members. Not we're on the committee together. Not we're in Sunday school together. Friends. Listen, people do not want a friendly church. They want friends. And it'd be great if they had friends at church. And see, you can be a friendly church and not have friends at church and never connect there. Never connect there. But see, friends can be honest with one another. Friends can let their guard down. Friends can disagree in love. Friends can unify on common ground. Friends can more easily forgive. And, but if we don't have friends here, what I mean by here is I mean in this group this church at North Park, if you're a regular, if you're an attender, if you're a member, if we don't have friends here, we're doing it wrong. It's one thing if you're new. But if we don't have friends here, we're, we're, we're really doing it wrong. I mean, this major thing happens in their life where they're arrested and threatened and the first place they go is to the church. Not the building. The people of common faith to pour their hearts out together and to seek God together. See, when you have friends, when, when the church is friends and when you have friends there, it makes it a lot harder to hide if you have friends. It makes it a lot harder to be a jerk 
at church if you have friends. It makes it a lot harder to leave if you have friends. True Christian community is rooted in friendship. All through the story, it wasn't just Peter. It was Peter and John. And then Peter and John go back and get with their friends. All through the story, it's friendship and community. And here's the thing. True Christian community is rooted in friendship, and friendship and community fosters boldness. It nurtures it. And I'm going to tell you how you know. I don't, I don't want to hear no stories this morning. We don't want to ruin your testimony. But listen. Get, think back to your childhood. Think back to when you were a kid or when you were a teenager. Did you get in more trouble when you were by yourself or with others? Probably with others. Right? I can tell you. I, I got more, I mean, you know, if I was by myself, most, you know, I mean, but, but you get around others and you begin to have ideas. Right? You begin to talk. And this part, they're, they're willing to do this. And so maybe, I, we call it peer pressure, right? And there's this, you end up doing things you wouldn't do. Playing pranks you would never have played on your own, right? Doing things that you would have never conceived on your own, but so-and-so came up with the idea and they're willing to do it, so you're willing to do it. That's a negative example of the rowdiness, the boldness that comes when you put sinners together. But on the positive side, it works the same way. It works the same way. There is boldness that grows and that is fostered and that is nurtured within community. Jesus sent them out two by two. Jesus called 12 to himself, and they, man, they basically just roamed together for those three plus years. Inside of that 12, he had three from what we can tell that he even poured into, it seems like, even more than that. All through this text, all through Acts, it's not the story of one man shows as a general rule. It's the story of people in groups and people together, traveling together, doing missions together, the church in each city going forth together because mission happens in community and boldness flows from good, genuine community. Verse 32 that we didn't read that we'll pick up with next week, it says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. See, mission unifies people. And a unified community, a unified friendship helps foster and maintain boldness. We would do things that we would never do on our own. There's an accountability there. There's an encouragement together. We stir one another up, as Hebrews says, to love and good deeds. But it only happens if the community's on mission. If we're not stirring to one another to greater thoughts of God, talking about the gospel, celebrating the wins, being honest about the struggles when we're together, then we won't be bold out there, right? If we don't have good community here. The church, the gathering of saints, is the safe place that we can gather to be refueled. But we're not meant for this. We're meant for launch. Right? I heard one guy explain it this way. It's like, it's like a football huddle. And so when we're in here, this is the huddle. Of course, teams nowadays don't hardly use huddles anymore, right? But it's, it's, it's the huddle. It's the huddles where, the, you know, and, and for those of you that don't watch football, when you do watch football and you see the little circle of people that get together behind the ball and they talk for a minute and then they go out and they run a play, right? That's the huddle. And they get together in the huddle and in the huddles where you hear things like, hey, you ran the wrong route to the wide receiver. Or the wide receiver says to the quarterback, hey, you missed me last time I was open. And there's a little bit of communication that goes on there. Some direction, some accountability takes place. And they encourage one another. So we're going to get them this time, right? We're going to run this play. Team on three, one, two, three. And then they go out and then they run the play. Then they run the play. Now here's the thing. If the huddle is dysfunctional, the play is usually a wreck. It just is. Now, you can have a great huddle and be a, a unified team and have a horrible team and not accomplish anything because maybe we still get out there and don't run the play right or whatever. The point of the analogy, the point of the illustration is simply this. This is the place where we come together to be sharpened, to get instruction, to get direction, to be held accountable, to be, to, to, to be able to dialogue and to come together as a community. But the plays are run out there. That's why when you read Acts, all the action usually is happening outside the four walls of the gathering. It's happening out in the marketplace. It's happening out in the synagogues when you're in Jerusalem. But as they go out there, it's in people's homes. It's by the riverbanks, man. It's, it's literally a dude traveling back from worship on the side of the road and he meets a God evangelist who preaches the gospel to him. It's, it's happening on the move. And then we see them coming together. We see them praying. We see them meeting together as a church, but then they scatter. So we gather to scatter. But the community is important because boldness is nurtured and fostered 
within gospel friendships and gospel community. And last thing about being bold, we need to seek boldness through prayer. That's what we see at the end of the chapter, right? After such a bold display of standing for Christ and declaring to preach truth, they get together and they pray for more boldness. It's a very God-centered prayer, right? Sovereign Lord, and they begin to recount God's power to create His sovereignty over Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. Right? They're, they're acknowledging God's power and His authority and then they make their request. They're basically worshiping and then they make their request. Boldness to speak the word and continued signs as it goes forward. Continued miracles so that they continue to speak the boldness. Now think about that. They've just been arrested and threatened. Been arrested and threatened. And they get together with their church family. And what would we hear today? Oh, pray that God protects us. Pray that there wouldn't be persecution. Pray that we wouldn't get arrested again. That was scary. Right? And then we'd move on. Pray for Aunt Lucille. Right? Her foot hurts. I'm not making light of those things. I want you to notice it's completely absent from Luke's recording of their prayer time. Why is that? Is it because it's wrong to pray for safety? Is it because it's wrong to pray for Aunt Lucille's foot? I don't think that's the point. The point is they're so focused on the advancement of God's mission that their eyes are not even on themselves. In fact, as one commentator points out, they prayed for this knowing that it would mean continued persecution because they've been threatened. If you keep doing this, if you keep doing this, you're going to be in bad trouble. And we're going to see. People are going to be killed over this. You keep doing this, we're going to end you. So what do they do? God, help us to keep doing this. Give us the strength to keep doing this. They pray for boldness in the midst of the adversity. And what happens? God literally shakes the place. Now why is the place shaking? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that associated with the presence of God. It's God's way of saying, I'm here and I hear you. It's a precursor to their answered prayer because then they go forth in the power of the Spirit and they continue in boldness. God loves to answer prayers that He's longing for you to pray. But their focus was not on their safety in the mission, but their faithfulness to the mission. Their focus wasn't on their agenda, but God's kingdom. Not on their preferences, but God's priorities. Their focus was not inward, it was Godward. And I fear that if we got real honest, that we spend ten times more time praying for our security and prosperity than we do in the advancement of God's mission. And yet when I read Acts, I don't see any much prayers like that. I see them pray for Peter to get out of jail. And God gets him out of jail. And then they don't even believe that God had answered the prayer. Right? But for the most part, what we see is go for it. Go for it. Give us strength. Let us remain bold. Help us focus on the, mission, on the mission. And notice, they prayed in such a way that they could be the answer to the prayer. Give us boldness. As you continue to do more, give us boldness that we would go for it, right? That we would continue to proclaim. That we would continue to preach the Word. Let me ask you, do you tend to pray in a way that you can be a part of the answer? For instance, it's one thing to pray for the church. It's another thing to pray for how God might use you to bless others at the church. It's another thing for me to pray for the lost. It's another thing for me to pray, not just for some lost person I know, but that God would give me the boldness and the opportunity and that I would seize the opportunity to share the gospel. It's one thing to pray for those in your life that are hurting. It's another thing to pray for God to help you to see how you can help and minister to the person that's hurting. See, they're not just praying for God to do something. They're praying for God to enable them to do it. Listen, prayer is not a way to get us out of work. It's how God gets us into the work. Prayer is how God thrusts us into His mission. That's why Jesus said, we talked about this several weeks ago, pray for laborers in the harvest. Because when you start praying for God to raise up laborers, God starts talking to you. You start seeing in His Word how He is sending you. Boldness. Salt through prayer. And granted, and granted, I love that. They didn't just pray for it. God gave it to them. And they turned their world upside down. Listen, there is power in the name of Jesus this morning. That is good news. Power to heal, power to save. 
The Jesus that has died for our sins, taken our place on the cross, bearing the judgment of God for us, has risen from the dead. He's coming back again. He is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority. He reigns over heaven and earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So there is power in His name. And we could go around the room this morning and we could give testimony how, how King Jesus has rescued people from addiction, self-righteousness, bondage, of people that believed in the name of Jesus from a very young age and he, God has spared them all sorts of trouble they could have brought in their life. There is power in the name of Jesus. Marriages that have been rescued. Relationships. People that thought they would never see a relationship healed. Relationships that have been healed. People that have been sustained through incredibly difficult and painful things because there's power in the name of Jesus. Because He's got the authority, He's got the power to set us free, to change our lives. He's done what needs to be done and He extends His healing hand to each of us and He just says, believe. Believe. Maybe this morning some of you need to believe on the name of Jesus. The Bible says, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to call to Him. Maybe you need to believe. Maybe you need to reach out this morning in faith and call to Him in repentance and faith and place your faith in Him. But for many, if not most of us this morning, we know His name. It's written on our heart. He's saved us. He's changed us. We went from death to life. You've experienced His healing power in relationships, in your marriage, in your life. You've seen God do incredible things. He's he's saved you from hell. (laughs) And a myriad of other things. And how can we not, why would we not plead with Him for boldness? Boldness that would be befitting of the power of that name. Boldness that's spirit empowered. Boldness that is nurtured by our community of faith. Boldness that's not rooted in personal confidence, but rooted in confidence that the gospel is true. And and why would we not seek that in prayer? I would hope that we would. It's my prayer that over these weeks that God would continue. I've heard stories already this morning of people that have shared their faith. That's a hard thing to do if you haven't done it in a while. It's an awkward thing to do at times. And it's my hope that God would continue to push us out and thrust us out into the world that's around us with the gospel. This morning, do you need to believe in Jesus? The power that's in His name. This morning, do you need to seek boldness in that name? Whatever God speaks to you this morning, it's my hope and my prayer, and it might be something totally different, whatever the Holy Spirit's placed on your heart this morning, that we would not simply hear, but that we would appropriate it into our lives. Let's pray.